This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you were listening to this show last week, early last week, you would have heard a conversation I had with Dan McKinnon, who is the head of public works for the city, about that very topic, about roads, because at that time, if you recall, everybody was angry and I think justifiably so, but everybody was angry because our roads were a mess. They still are. I mean, it's still winter. We haven't been able to fix all of them, but potholes were the topic du jour. Everybody was talking about the potholes that were popping up because we've had a winter of freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing, which is a recipe for this kind of thing. Well, more than any other road, the one that had drawn the most attention was Main Street West, pretty much from outside my f- window here in the studio at Longwood and Main, right across in front of McMaster University. It was rough. And I'm, when I mean rough, I mean literally it was rough. You could lose a small car in there or something along those lines. Well, the city heard people's complaints, which doesn't always happen this immediately, but the city heard people's complaints and put a rush on to fix the problem. And last night there were cones that were put up blocking out the eastbound lanes along Main West. And this morning the machinery moved in, being beginning to do repairs, which is perfect, right? Not so much. Now we find out through a story by Matthew Van Dongen in the spec today on the spec.com. Everybody apparently is mad that there's traffic jams. I don't, you're never going to make everybody happy. Apparently. Uh, Let me bring back in Dan McKinnon, the head of public works, the I'm sure now beleaguered Dan McKinnon, (laughs) who is trying to figure out how to make people happy in this city. Uh, Sir, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, Scott. I I see your music is right on point again tonight. Well done. (laughs) Well, they were mad at you guys for not fixing the roads, and now they're mad at you for fixing the roads. Well, yeah, that's that's just uh, that's part of my life, Scott. You know, uh, (laughs) I'm being everybody's favorite target. Do you scratch your head sometimes, though, at the response? I mean, we don't often see, and this is not an insult, but we don't often see the city leap to its feet and take action this quickly. I, I'm sort of, I was sort of thinking, wow, this is pretty an impressive response to this. I didn't expect there was going to be civic anger towards it. Yeah, and, and you know what? I completely understand and appreciate the frustration. I was several times to uh, to drive and witness the condition of the road, and it was it was atrocious. Our, our crews had been out there on a regular basis, uh, you know, filling the potholes and trying to uh, to improve the saturation with. And put, filling potholes is really a band aid, and uh, you know, a credit to council, they uh, they they uh, were hearing the uh, the complaints and directed us to move in immediately. It would have been my preference, quite honestly, uh, to wait until the milder weather till it was more um, conducive to construction. But uh, council uh, wanted us to move in right away, so that's what we did. And Actually, the crews moved in last night. Um, they're going to be working 24/7 until we're done, and we're, you know, we're, we're cautiously optimistic that we will be done by five o'clock Friday afternoon, and then we'll just be, we'll be a bad memory as far as the eastbound lanes. We will come back in the better weather. We're going to do some work in the uh, in the westbound lanes as well, but uh, we we think we got some time to wait for better weather for that. So. There are often, though, Dan, and one of the one of the comments that some people had had is there would usually or there would often be signs put up a few days ahead of time if there was going to be construction so people could plan their trip around it and maybe avoid it. There, to best of my knowledge, there were none put up. Was that just because of the hurry of this thing? That, that was part of it. Um, we did pull all this together pretty quickly as a result of the desire from council to get moving on it quickly. Uh, we did put out a media release yesterday, but... You know, I also appreciate that um, maybe not everybody would have uh, either heard it or seen it in the media somewhere. But I can tell you as well, uh, you know, I'd spent my entire career in construction and uh, 
there's always folks who aren't going to hear the uh, hear the uh, the information or see it somewhere. So there's always going to be frustration. And I drove through there this morning. I wanted to check it out on my way uh, through, and um, you know I think it probably took me close to an hour to go about a kilometer. So I'm very sympathetic to the uh, to the complaints that people have, but uh, road work is probably one of the most intrusive things that we do as far as capital upgrades at the city, and it, it really affects a lot of people. And that's one of the busiest roads in Hamilton. So. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, you know, we can get get uh, the guys are going to be down there all night uh, again tonight, working right through tomorrow and again tomorrow night. So, uh, notwithstanding the frustration that motorists have, I'm hoping that they can uh, they can have some love for the guys down there because it's not the best weather to be working and certainly not at night. And the guys are doing a great job. While there was a rush put on this, uh, there also were people wondering: Could this have not have waited until the weekend when you didn't have all the people trying to get to work? What, could it have got done, started on Friday night, let's say, and gone through Sunday and been done? Yeah, it, it could have been theoretically. Again, we're trying to play the weather. We're trying to find the best uh, the best stretch of temperatures that are going to be above two or three during the day. So we were, uh, you know, we made our best judgment call, and you know, there was things that we had done. We we did. Uh, we put the, uh, the, uh, the traffic light timings to try to improve the throughput of traffic through the construction zone. But, um, you know, that's, uh, um, that's something we did look at. But we're, we have to have a decent stretch of weather here. And we know we can't rely on it for a long period of time. If we were half the job and down to, you know, minus three, minus four as a daytime high, then we would have had to pull out. So, so we're trying to balance all of those things. And, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, no matter what we did there, we probably would receive some criticism, and I understand it. It's very frustrating for for people when they're driving through there, and and uh, it's not a great way to start your day when you're you know, half an hour behind, right, right at the outset. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Chatting with the head of public works for the city of Hamilton, Dan McKinnon, about this road repair that I caught a lot of people off guard. And Dan, you know, on the one hand. I get that people were frustrated. On the other hand, the fact that you caught people off guard by doing a job more quickly than they had expected, there's got to be some small level of satisfaction for that in you. (laughs) As opposed to being, hey, you took forever to get here. You did it so fast they didn't know it was happening. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, we we often respond very quickly to, uh, to situations that happen. I think that this one's probably just very high profile, but on a regular basis, our staff had have to respond to things that were not in our work plan. You know, it could be the escarpment face uh, falling in. It could be flooding or rising water levels in the, uh, in the lake, like we dealt with last year. That's just part of what public works does. We have to be ready all the time to respond to whatever the environment's throwing at us. So, but that, but then those things that you just alluded to, and, and for sure those things come up, and you had a rock slide earlier, and you had a sinkhole from a pipe bursting. Those are, I think, what most people would categorize as an emergency thing. Something has happened that obviously needs to have you guys, your attention right away. Most people wouldn't talk about a road with potholes as being an emergency situation. It's an annoyance, but it's not an emergency. Yeah, you know, and it's it's, it's uh, not to sound too kind of bureaucratic or geeky here. It's interesting when you think about the definition of an emergency. You have a road here that is outside of the link in the Red Hill carries the highest number of cars every day, in excess of 50,000 cars a day. So it's the busiest street in Hamilton. Uh, it's, it's a very important transit route for us. And uh, it's also not unlike that uh, the council brought forward. It's, it's, it's a gateway to one of our most prominent institutions. So when that is... Um, you know, in the condition that it's in, you know, I think council saw fit to call it an emergency, and I don't blame them. I mean, it's you, you, you can start to suffer some reputational harm when you allow something like that to go on too long. So um, I think they made the right call. Um, you know, we're doing our best, like I said, hopefully by the uh, 
the end of Friday will just be a bad memory and people will uh, see what a great uh, job the staff did there to, to fix the road. You mentioned that this is being done 24-7 that's going on through the night. Is that commonplace? Do you do that often? Um, no. Um, and we do work outside conventional hours for a variety of reasons, be it you know, if we need to shut off the water to do it to repair a water main leak, we'll try to do that so that we're not affecting local businesses. And um, and a lot of times people will see um, road work happening after hours just for that very reason to avoid the peak rush hours in the morning and, and in the afternoon. But um, the amount of work that was going to be necessary here and just the way that we're doing the work, we're grinding it and we're paving right behind. So it's not like we could grind it and then leave and then come back. That would have just, that would have turned a three day job into an eight or nine day job. So you know, our, our approach is that it's going to be painful, but we're going to we're going to go for it, and we're going to try to keep that pain to as small a period of time as possible. Um, notwithstanding that, there's still going to be a lot of frustration. But doing it this way, and when you're doing it 24/7, and you have staff that's working through the night, is that not driving up the price? Do you not have to pay overtime for people? And would this not be a more costly way to do it? It is. Um, you have different crews coming in, so you have shift premiums and that kind of thing. So you, you do premium um, by virtue of the fact that you're getting it done in a short period of time your, your other overheads kind of go away uh, but again you know I, I think about that you know kind of that um, commercial harm that you're doing by having the condition of the road continue to exist or extending the length of time that it takes us to be on site fixing that there is benefits to shortening all that up and these are all city staff right you don't have to put out quotes for this you don't have to hire an outside company to do this no, no, uh, this is a contractor who's on site. We don't have the type of equipment that's necessary here. So there are a small group of people there on site. Um, but the, the guys who are actually doing the paving, that that is a, a local contractor. We were able to negotiate very favorable prices with uh, this contractor based on what we we know the, uh, the market rate is for this type of work. So uh, we did do a bit of negotiating to try to make sure that we, uh, we got value for the money that we were spending there. And... Um, so, uh, but but it was kind of an expedited emergency style procurement. We've got policies that we follow for that, but we know we got a pretty good price on this. So, so there are, and that was the other thing I was going to ask you. Then, if it's a private or if it's a not a city or a public company, there generally are rules about this that you have to put out a bid and have them come in and take the lowest bidder and all that. There are exceptions that you can have for these kind of situations. Absolutely, we have our purchasing bylaw that has uh, many, many, couple dozen different around how you procure different things. And we even have a policy that tells you how to procure things when you can't follow policy. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure that all sounds very bureaucratic, but when you've lived with it for as long as I have, there's tremendous value in those policies. And, and so um, we were also given authority from council to go ahead and negotiate directly to whoever, whatever contractor we felt could get out there and do the work quickest. But uh, I'm very confident that our staff did a good job in, in negotiating the, the price. And uh, like I said, I think we're getting very good value for this. And assuming that the weather doesn't have a sudden turn, you say you're done by Friday. So everyone will be happy by Monday and the road will be perfect and it'll be like driving on glass all the way to work on Monday morning. The eastbound lanes are going to be beautiful by uh, by the time we go to bed Friday night. Um, again, we do have some work we want to do in the westbound lanes. Our crews will be watching the the weather forecast and if they, if they see a window where they think that the, the temperature is going to go up to uh, you know, a level that they think is uh, appropriate, then we might move in and do the uh, some of the westbound lanes. Mm-hmm. It's not nearly as much that we think we need to do in the westbound lanes. It's a much shorter section, probably just from Longwood to about uh, Dalewood. Um, so hopefully that won't be problematic. But uh, um, we will, uh, again, we'll be 
doing media releases and whatnot for that, but we're going to try to time it with the weather so we may not have a lot of lead time on that portion. Dan McKinnon, Head of Public Works for the City of Hamilton. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time tonight. My pleasure. Uh, I did find it humorous today when I heard that people were cranky that they had moved in too quickly. I guess we're, we're just so unused to city things happening this fast that it threw us all off. But it was kind of funny. We normally were complaining, right, that we can't get things done fast enough. Now we get something done really fast and we're complaining about that. I Next time you're driving, if you're driving between, driving on Main Street West between now and Friday, this might be one of those times to take a breath and say, all right, I'm not going to complain this time. I'll save that for down the road. But this time, you know what? They got out here fast. Let's cut them some slack. I'm going to do that when I leave here tonight and can't turn on the street where I need to turn to go home. I am going to breathe and say, good for them for getting here fast. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I am not a viewer of The Bachelor. I am reasonably confident in saying that I have never seen an entire episode. I don't think I ever have. I've seen some snippets. I've seen a few moments, just long enough stretches to begin feeling my brain cells dying. So I pulled out before my brain completely turned to mush. Anyway, last night was the big season finale for this year, for this time around. And the star of this season was Ari Leyendijk Jr., who, if you recognize the name, he's the son of the two-time Indy 500 driving champion. Anyway, why am I telling you all this? Well, because ABC, the network that hosts The Bachelor, is getting hammered today for being cruel and exploitive and unnecessarily voyeuristic and mean and all these things for allowing cameras to be rolling during this show. I guess live, I understand it. As Ari Leyendijk Jr. broke up with one of the women on the show. The Toronto Star actually described this stretch of TV as 20 minutes of raw footage of a woman having her heart ripped out. Sounds cruel. Sounds horrible. But isn't that kind of exactly why we watch reality TV? Now, Robert Thompson is a pop culture expert, one of America's leading pop culture experts, who's the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. He's a professor of television and popular culture at Syracuse University, and he's written more books on this topic than I've read on any topic. Uh, Mr. Thompson, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is not, this Toronto Star piece that talks about this 20 minutes of watching a woman have her heart ripped out, this was not the only thing I read on this, and it sounds terrible and it sounds uncomfortable, but isn't this, as I said a moment ago, exactly why we, why TV viewers tune in to watch reality TV for this kind of thing? Well, it's it's one of the reasons, and actually reality TV has gotten nicer as the years have gone huh. on. Remember American Idol back in the Simon Cowell years, where... Uh, uh, at least the first half of that series was ab- about mocking people uh, who weren't very good. Uh, in 2001, we had Temptation Island, which was an extraordinarily oh, yeah, exploitative uh, thing. Uh, and then a ripoff of American Idol, the WB Superstar USA. Superstar USA, yes, indeed. The Actually most was about making people think that they were trying out for an American Idol show for the best singer. It was to try to find the worst one. <laughs> Um, it was really nasty. Um, but anyway, this, this thing, it, it wasn't live that they showed this long thing of the, uh, this woman getting broken up with, but uh, it was unedited, so it really was raw footage, and it was uh, very raw. 
and it, they are definitely getting hammered. And by the way, they didn't just do a little of this. On the uh, season finale, it was three hours long, and that's when they showed this stuff. And then the after the final rose, the next day on Tuesday, was two hours long. So they milked this for uh, uh, you know two full nights of, um, uh, of prime time. But you're right. If, if you want, you know ethical treatment, if you want uh, people being decent and all that kind of stuff, you long ago should have realized that The Bachelor in general and an awful lot of reality TV is probably not where you should be looking for it. No, and you mentioned Superstar USA. Since you mentioned it, uh, this I'm was so a show. You uh, rec- remembered that nobody else does. I'm impressed. Well, I remember it because I remember at the time. First of all, I, I I'm ashamed to say that I found certain parts of it hilarious, which is really a, an indictment of me. I acknowledge, but the other I, part was I agree with you though. But, mm-hmm. but the other part was why how they told because they had a live audience cheering these horrible singers on, and okay. I learned afterwards they had told the audience these were people with fatal illnesses. So root for them and it's like that's the lowest of the low yeah that early century reality tv did a lot of that kind of stuff and there's still you know we've got the real housewives and stuff but actually reality tv is tamer now than do you remember the joe schmo show It, it was on spike tv and the first season of it was actually one of my favorite reality tv shows ever but the whole thing was like it was like kind of like big brother but the difference was only one guy in the house was actually an authentic contestant. All the rest of them were actors pl- playing, you know, playing mind games with this guy. He thought he was on a real show. The rest of them had all been scripted. Kristen Wiig, when nobody knew who she was, was one of the actors on this. From Saturday Night Live, yep, From, sure. yeah, sure. Bridesmaids. Became, right, a, a movie star on Saturday Night Live. Um, so early reality TV did a lot of this kind of stuff, but uh, uh, it's, it's kind of toned down. The Bachelor, you know, I'm conflicted. For one thing, this is a major franchise. Not only do we have The Bachelor, we have the spin-off of The Bachelor at uh there was Bachelor Pad, then Bachelor in Paradise, all the weddings that they did, Bachelor Winter Games which they did up against the um uh, Olympics just this last uh, uh last month. I mean, this is a massive uh uh franchise for ABC. And part of me, and I have to confess, and I'm certainly embarrassed about this too, I suppose, but um, you haven't watched any of these uh, all the way through. I think I have seen every episode of The Bachelor. And part of it I can justify that it's my job, but actually I do find the show uh, entertaining in a really perverse uh, uh, sort of way. And in some ways, it really does reveal courtship behavior. You know, you could watch romantic comedies and movies, you know, wonderful shows with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Um, but that is not really the way courtship rituals go. Yes, The Bachelor has people behaving in insecure and stupid and inarticulate ways. But let's face it, courtship is stupid, insecure, and inarticulate. That's how people uh, uh, go through these rituals. And for all of its fakeness, and there is a lot of fake stuff going on in The Bachelor, just watch Lifetime's uh, series Unreal, and you'll get a uh, um, uh, look at that. But um, there, in an odd, weird sort of way, there's a certain sense that one really gets a look at what these kinds of behaviors are like. And that raw footage of that breakup, it was exploitative, I agree. They shouldn't have aired it, I agree. It was painful, I agree. But it was kind of like a breakup is, which is painful and unpleasant. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Robert Thompson, pop culture expert, about reality TV. Last night, The Bachelor got hammered for, well, what some people are saying was exploiting the pain of one of their contestants. And, but this is something that we see in reality TV not randomly, not rarely. This happens. And, and Robert, I, what I'm looking at is, okay, you mentioned Temptation Island. We've, we've clearly decided that sex of some sort is okay. We've had violence. We've got all these other things. Is there a line that reality TV would not cross or should not cross? Well, I suppose the, the major line is you don't want to physically endanger the people who are on it. You want to make sure that people don't get physically hurt or don't die. And, uh, uh, and of course, there's been some times in Survivor where there's been some injuries and fear factor and that kind of thing. So I think that the first thing is you want to keep people safe. The next question, though, is what about emotionally damaging them? What about humiliating them? And that gets a little tougher because obviously some degree of that, as you pointed out, is part of what these shows are really all about. In the utopian world, we would, of course, treat other people the way we would want to be treated. We would present them on television the way we would want to be presented on television. But that's not going to happen in reality TV or any other uh, uh, kind of thing uh, either. And a lot of these people sign on to this thing. Reality TV has been around since at least uh, the real world in 1992. People know they get edited in ways that make them seem different than they were. They know uh, uh, what they're getting into. So to some extent, people are using these things to be on TV and agreeing to play some of these uh, um, uh, roles that in in fact look really humiliating. The, The question is where one draws that line, and it seems like the producers only figure that out when they've crossed it. You know, you mentioned, and, and I, I tend to agree with you. Well, certainly I agree with the idea you don't want to see somebody hurt. And I tend to agree with you that they would never show that or do that. But I, I, I don't know. If Survivor had a contestant actually die on the show, I find it really hard to believe that, they, that CBS would take the entire footage of the entire season and say, no, we're not going to show any of it. We're going to just put that in the, in the garbage. I think they would set this thing up as a special Survivor, and they'd try to make it sad and try to make it sensitive and all that, but they would see the ratings in that would be enormous. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, because there'd be all kinds of litigation possibility. But let's face it, uh, uh, when we watch auto racing, and I know nobody really wants to see someone get hurt, but there is a thrill uh, of watching auto racing, uh, because there is the possibility, there is the fact that what's at stake here is a real sense of danger. People do die in uh, 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 in auto racing, and uh, uh, that is part of what gives the charge to uh, uh, to all of this. Uh, and with reality TV, I don't know if if. Um, if, if they actually killed off a contestant, I think that would uh, uh, have... And they've had some uh, issues. Uh, Big Brother, somebody had a knife at one point, which they uh, really kind of edited around and all the rest of it. So uh, it's it's hard to see how far uh, mm. one would really go. But it's the emotional humiliation. That, I think, is something that uh, all bets are off when it comes to. Well, how sympathetic... Should we be to the people who are on these shows? And you touched on it a second ago because they've signed on to join this false universe that they have willingly participated in, knowing there is a chance, maybe a likelihood 
of that things are not as they happen in real life. How sympathetic should we be to someone who's on one of these shows? Well, I suppose whenever anybody is hurting, we should be sympathetic to them. But it is true. Nobody that goes on The Bachelor, this thing has been on for, uh, uh, when it's moving on to two decades at some point. Was it 2004, 2002? I forget when it started. Um, uh, and everybody that goes on that show has seen the other shows. Some of them, in fact, have been friends of people that have been on it. So you do know what you're going, getting into. It's not as though you're walking down the street one day, you meet somebody for coffee, and all of a sudden you're on the bench. <laughs> uh, you've got to try out. This isn't uh, the Truman Show. Right. You go through all these hoops. I mean, you really need to want to be on that show to make it to the final uh, uh, ones that uh, uh, get on it. And with that comes the knowledge of how this uh, kind of show works. It's true of the real world. It's true of uh, uh, most reality shows. So to some extent, it's like somewhere in between real people and actors. These people agree to be on a show where they know they're going to play characters but they're not exactly sure what character mm. they may be playing because that's up to the people that edit it. Interesting, interesting. Does this then suggest, we only have a minute left here, when we watch this, when we know that there are going to be people who blow up, when we know there are people who are going to look terrible, maybe, as you say, be emotionally damaged, and yet we tune in in droves, does that say more about them or does that say more about us? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I suppose uh, about about both of us. Uh, uh, you, uh, uh, they wouldn't be able to do this if it weren't for the fact that we were watching it, and we'd have nothing to watch if people wouldn't agree to do it. <laughs> so it's all kind of a perverted dance that the people who serve us this weird entertainment and those of us who like it uh, have to do together. And if either half of that equation would decide to quit doing it, the whole thing would dissolve. Robert Thompson, pop culture expert, one of the leading guys in that field. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure. Thank you. It is, um, it is a, it is a tw- tricky one, and I would love, I don't know, let me take that back. I don't want, ever want someone to die on a reality show. That's not, nobody would want that, but I would be fascinated to see what a show would do if faced with that situation. Robert Thompson and I disagree slightly on that. I don't see that a show would throw out the whole season, I think they would try to generate ratings. I hate to say it. It's cynical. It's gross, but I think they would. I Maybe they wouldn't, though. Maybe, maybe good taste would override ratings in that particular circumstance, but that may be the only circumstance. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Tonight, we're going to do something new on this show. It's called Ben's Story of the Day. Ben, of course, is the man on the other side of the glass. If, you're, um, if you listen regularly, you hear Ben's voice now and then. We bring him along to have a conversation. I'm going to give Ben a choice of three ridiculous but true stories from this week. Ben, you get to choose which one is your favorite story of the day, all right? Sounds good to me. All right, let us start in England where the organizers of the Big Cheese Festival are now on their heels and apologizing profusely. The Big Cheese Festival. Big Cheese Festival is a massive event where you go and try all kinds of delicious and unusual and tasty cheeses. Sounds like a great event to me. Love cheese. I don't know if you're a cheese eater, but it sounds like a wonderful event to me. Just go and eat cheese. 
Not great the next day for your digestion and for moving stuff, but for the moment when you're eating all the cheese, it's great. So why are the organizers of the Big Cheese Festival in England that sold thousands of tickets to other cheese lovers like myself, why are they apologizing today? What do you think they ran out of, Ben? Possibly some cheese. They ran out of cheese. Thousands of people show up to eat cheese, and the cheese festival has a cheese shortage. You would think, you, you know, I was thinking about this today. Someone at the office, at the other office, when I mentioned this, said that old line, you had one job. <laughs> Make sure we have cheese. This is, this is a cheese festival. There is no other element of this. There's no music that we know of. It's not a wine and cheese festival. It's a cheese festival. There is only one element of this that we need, and that is the cheese. And they ran out of cheese. That is story number one. I found that one. Hilarious. They do. They did offer, by the way, music in the background, and they did offer craft beers, but it was a cheese festival. They have been offering refunds to those who could not get their cheese. Number two, story number two, and this one's from a few days ago, but I'm just getting to it now, but possible number two favorite story of the week. This guy in West Virginia went out for a night on the town with his friends. And, um, well, he got pretty much loaded. He drank way too much, and he got himself completely hammered. Just could not possibly have another drink. Couldn't put another bit of alcohol into his system. He was absolutely tanked. But he had to get home, and he didn't want to drive, so we'll give him credit for that one. He didn't want to drive his car, so he called an Uber. Everyone knows what an Uber is, right? It's like a taxi, if you're not really familiar with it. He called it to an Uber and asked the Uber driver to get him home. Well, I guess because he was so drunk, there was some miscommunication. And when he passed out in the backseat of the Uber and woke up several hours later, he was in New Jersey. (laughs) Hadn't quite explained it properly. Anyway, ended up with a $1,700 Uber fare that the Uber driver was insistent on collecting. The The moral of the story, do not drink too much and then pass out in the back of an Uber. It will cost you money. And by the way, the Uber charge included a, I love this, a $3.94 base fare. That's That, that was going to really do them in. And a $2.35 booking fee. And then after that, it just went through the roof. The... Number three, the third item, and this this one, well, I suppose this can happen, although I'm really not sure how it happens. On Monday, every lawyer in the state of Utah who pays their dues to the Utah Bar Association, the Lawyers Association of Utah, and I would assume that means every lawyer, because if you're licensed in most states or most provinces, you have to belong to the Bar Association, you have to pay your dues, you have to be a officially sanctioned person for that line of work. Anyway, every lawyer in Utah who is a member of the Bar Association, which is all of them, received an email. And what was the email? (laughs) Every, Every lawyer who opened up their email on Monday in the state of Utah got a picture of boobs. Someone, they haven't quite figured out why or who, someone sent a photo of women's breasts to every lawyer in Utah. They are now, 
They are now frantically apologizing. Apologies to all who received an inappropriate email from the Utah State Bar. We are aware of the situation and are investigating the matter. Uh, the email contained the subject line, 2018 Spring Convention, Walk-Ins Welcome, Learn How. <laughs> and then it was a picture of, apparently it was Spring Break, not Spring Convention. There you go. There are your three options. Ben, we will let you choose. Which of these stories of the day is Ben's story of the day today? Ben's story of the day today is going to have to be story number three. Story number three. The the wide-eyed Utah lawyers who were distracted from their job today, this week because someone sent them an inappropriate photo. I... I wonder if the police or the investigators down there will have more luck than with us finding our anarchists who threw bricks through windows. But if it is, ooh, I, in Utah, sending out pictures of that, ooh, that's not going to go well, I wouldn't think. Anyway, there you go. Three stories a day. We'll, we'll try doing this once a week. Have Ben's story of the day. Maybe you can write in too. You can choose. Radley at 900CHML.com. Tell me what your choice would be for the story of the day. Love to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Tonight, before the evening is over, the Hamilton Bulldogs could, for the first time ever, clinch first place in the Eastern Conference. They've already clinched a playoff spot. They are already a favorite to go to the Ontario Hockey League Finals, but tonight they could lock up first place in their conference, which would be, considering where they started two years ago, or three years ago, I guess, uh, this would be a huge step up for them. Terry Pekoski writes about the Hamilton Bulldogs for the Hamilton Spectator, and she joins me now from First Ontario Centre. Terry, how are you tonight? Hey, Scott. I'm good. How are you? I am good. I Are you surprised that... This quickly, and I mean within three years, uh, it's not immediately, but th- they have done this well and been able to turn around this much? Yes and no. I mean, th- this has always been a goal, right? They kind of, you know, from the beginning, I really do think they had their eye on this season as the one where they would peak, and that's kind of how the Ontario Hockey League works. Is these, these teams kind of work in ebbs and flows, right? So there's a there's a huge rebuilding period and that's kind of where they inherited the team and this was just sort of the natural uh point where they would sort of come through that cycle at the same time you could say the same thing about the flint firebirds or a team like that that literally three years ago were in exactly the same place as the hamilton bulldogs and were just a couple weeks ago eliminated from the playoffs entirely so in that sense i think they've done a really good job how much of this credit do you give to general manager Steve Stales then for building this? And how much do you say, well, you know what? I mean, there's part of this that is just the fact, as you say, the ebb and flow. This team was bound to get better, whether he did anything or not. I think that a lot of their success has to do with chemistry. I mean, still, even though this team is in first place, it's not a team built with superstars. Uh, and I, th- I think that's the thing that is maybe its biggest asset, right? Um I think that he's made the right moves. He hasn't made necessarily blockbuster moves, with the exception of someone like Robert Thomas. Uh, he's just sort of, you know, quietly put the pieces together. And it's a bunch of guys that have great chemistry. And you see that maybe that's a bit more important than having, you know, a guy like, I mean, look at Mississauga. They've got some superstars. They've got the McLeod brothers. They've got Owen Tippett. And they're in eighth place right now. So I think it speaks to, you know, his understanding of what makes a good team. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with his experience playing on teams for so long. But also, you know, his work with Toronto uh, in player development. This is, um, I really believe this is going to be a rather huge spring for this team as far as 
they've been trying to gain traction in the market. They've been trying to get people interested. They really want to become a relevant part of the discussion. And I, I really think they have to have a good playoffs in order to, to, to do that and to really get people's attention. But how far can this team go, do you think? How, how confident are you that this is a team that is built to go on a long, long playoff run? You know what? I think the more I've seen them over the last couple of weeks, I'm feeling a bit better about it. There was a streak there, you know, maybe a month or a month and a half ago when things weren't going so well. And I thought, oh, man, this is a team that might not make it out of the second round. Or, you know what? Maybe they run into a team like Mississauga in the first round and something really crazy happens. But I think the way that they've been playing lately, um, they've been playing as a team. They're not necessarily blowing teams out. They're winning close games. Uh, and they're just they're playing a bit more tightly on defense, which is something that was missing for a little while. And when I see that sort of stuff, it gives me a bit more confidence that they're going to make a long playoff run. At the same time, it's the Ontario Hockey League. These guys are all teenagers. And I sound like head coach John Gruden right now. Uh, but anything can happen when you're dealing with 16 to 20 year olds. Well, and the thing is, when this team is good, they are really, really good. But when they are bad, they're kind of stinky at times. Oh, it, it, it can be really bad. And I, I think that's, you know, for that reason, what this is going to come down to is good goaltending. I mean, when you look at the OHL often the teams that make it the furthest in the playoffs are the ones that get good and consistent goaltending because it's so hard to come by in this league. There are people, I have no doubt, Terry, that there are people listening to our conversation right now who are not huge Bulldogs fans. They are not wildly interested in this team. So why should they be? If you're if you're a Hamiltonian who is, you know, you're a Hamiltonian, you want to be supportive of whatever or in town, what is it about this team? Why should you be interested in this team at this point? Because they're exciting. And, and because they are, you know, I mentioned the fact that they're, you know, they're 16 to 20 year olds earlier. Uh, the fact that they are that age means they get really excited. When they win, it means a lot, and they're pumped. And it makes that, you know, it makes it exciting as a fan. I, I've noticed every game there's more and more people here, and the atmosphere gets better. And it's just kind of a cool place to be right now. I mean, I really do think the community is kind of getting on board with this team, finally. It's taken a few years, but... Why has that happened? Why has it taken so long, do you think? I think they needed to win. I mean, no one wants to watch a losing team, do they? I don't. Do you? Not, not, I don't love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's easier. You know what? It, it's, it's nice to watch a team that wins and a team that scores. This is not a team that, you know, over the last couple of seasons has, has been filled with snipers and... I just think the hockey this season in general has been a bit more exciting to watch. It's, you know, this is, it's, it's good. These, you know, again, no superstars aside from, you know, maybe it's not a kid like Robert Thomas, but when you put them all together, they, they can do some incredible things. You talk about this year. Now, one of the things that had to be done to build this team this year was to sacrifice a bit of the future. They had to give up some people to get a guy. Robert Thomas, by the way, for those who don't know, was a first-round draft pick of the St. Louis Blues, played in the World Junior Tournament recently over the Christmas holidays. He's a very good player. But to get someone like that from the London Knights, you've got to give something up. Did they give up so much that it's a team to watch for the next two months or so, and then for the next two years, it's going to be a disaster? I don't think so at this point. I mean, I forget how many how many future draft picks were involved in that deal, but it was like seven or eight or something like that. 
And at this point, when you start to trade those, it's like dealing with Monopoly money. I mean, you could offload a player or two next season and get those all back. So I, I think, you know, there's still some flexibility if they get certain guys back next year to, you know, to not be in sort of a huge rebuild. And this is the type of thing that you see a team like the London Knights do year after year, right? They're really good about managing uh, what they give up and what they get back. Um, so the Knights, I mean, on the other hand, they give up, you know, a guy like Robert Thomas. They gave up Max Jones. They gave up Cliff too, and they're still doing okay. I mean, they're they're not in last place by any margin. Plus, they've got all this young talent. So I think that if Steve Stavis can start managing the team, kind of like that, but you know, while maintaining this emphasis, I mean, he talks all the time about character and how important that is. So as long as you know that's still part of the picture, but you manage the resources, I think. Um, you can avoid that big downturn. But they can't. I See, I don't believe the Hamilton Bulldogs can afford to go from first place to a full-on rebuild. I think that for this team to carry on any kind of momentum with people in the community, they have to be good or great, but at least good every year. At least good. You know, and, and you started seeing it last year, but they weren't quite there. They were still one of the youngest teams in the league last season. Um a lot of this next year in particular will depend on who they get back. And that's a huge, huge question mark right now. They've got a bunch of signed NHL guys who could move on to the pros next season. And having one or two of them on their roster next year as overagers, or even, you know, a guy like Robert Thomas who has another year of eligibility, getting him back, that totally changes, you know, the whole picture for this team next season. So it's, it's, it's hard to tell right now, but I agree with you completely. They they have to be good enough to you know to maintain this momentum. Although I do think that if you get people out for a playoff game and to see sort of what's happening around the team right now in terms of the atmosphere in this place, people will will be back. Well, and that's I mean look, we're not going to get into the whole discussion of the place. You mentioned the place. I mean certainly the arena doesn't help them because it's by far the biggest arena in the Ontario Hockey League, and it does become yeah. very difficult to fill it and to build that kind of great atmosphere. The second half of the year, it's been a lot better. Tonight, it's a midweek game. Uh, midweek games never do very well. So, you know, there's probably uh, not a jammed house tonight. But, we, you know, weekends, it has been getting better over the last few months. It's better. And it's funny because I really do get the sense for everything that's said about the size of this ring. It's almost a point of pride for the kids to uh, to play here. I really do think they like, you know, regardless of whether all the seats are filled or not coming out and playing in an 18,000-seat arena. I think, you know, for for an 18-year-old, that means a lot to them, and it's exciting. And I think it's exciting for teams when they come to town, too. So, I don't know. I I don't think the size is a, is a huge problem. Could it be better in terms of atmosphere? You know, sure. But but it's, it's okay. I don't know. I, I kind of like it. The one regret that I have for this year is that the Bulldogs, because the season just isn't long enough for them to catch up now, the Bulldogs will not be able to win the Hamilton Spectator Trophy, which is something that a lot of people don't even know exists. Explain the Hamilton Spectator Trophy, please. This, well, I, I know this is one of your favorite topics. Uh, the Hamilton Spectator Trophy is awarded to the OHL team with the best regular season record. And, that and has to- been for like 40 years or something, or 50 oh my years. Basically forever. I mean, it is one of the trophies that's been along, around the longest in this league. Uh, and it won, I mean, it was decided weeks ago. The two Greyhounds are having an insane season. They clinched it ages ago. Uh, but we still haven't heard anything because this thing hasn't been pulled out of storage <laughs> for 
from the OHL head office in, in what, more than a decade? Yeah, for some reason the OHL does not actually, they give out every other trophy in their arsenal, except for some reason the Hamilton Spectator Trophy, which they decide they're not going to give out to anybody. They tell them they've won it, but then they don't give it to them. They, they, they tease them with the idea that you are a trophy winner, and then they won't actually let them pose with it or anything, which I don't understand. No, I know. It's, um, I, just, I think it sucks. I'm not going to lie, I'm biased. But, you know, just pull it out. Give it to them. They deserve it. You know, a ton of work goes into winning the regular season. It's, it's a huge accomplishment, and I feel like they deserve to, to have some sort of, you know, something tangible, not just a symbolic gesture. Well, imagine if you won the actual championship, if you won the playoffs, and they said, oh, by the way, we're not actually going to give you the trophy, so skate around the ice and pretend you've got the trophy in your hands and do a good pantomime or something, and nobody would want that. You've won the regular season. It's gone on for five months or six months. Surely you should be celebrating the fact that they've had that success. And you're right, we're both biased because we're from <laughs> Hamilton. It's not even the spectator, it's it's from Hamilton. This trophy originated in Hamilton. I don't understand why they are so insistent that they won't give it out. I know, I know. They, unless it's, like, really filthy and they just don't want to be bothered with, you know, cleaning it up, I don't know. Well, how how bad could it how bad could it be? Is it like in a cupboard with a bunch of cats that's now covered in cat urine? I mean, it, how horrible could the trophy actually be? You dust it off and you give it to somebody. I mean, who knows what's really happening at the OHL head office, Scott? Now, they by the way, they would not. When you've asked about this again this year, they yeah. wouldn't even get back to you to answer what's going to happen with it, right? I asked at least a week ago, and I still have yet to receive a response. So I'm going to take that as, you know, affirmation. Probably nothing will happen. You think they're getting tired of us asking about it? I would assume so, yes. I hope so. <laughs> I hope they're really... And this means this only means we're going to keep it up. We're going to keep haranguing them until they bring this thing out. See, I almost wonder, Terry, if at this point... They showed us a picture once upon a time. Yep. And I'm almost wondering if when they said we've got it in storage, what they really mean is... Ah, crap, we lost it somewhere, but we have this old picture, but we don't want to admit that we lost the trophy, so we'll just not present it. Well, you know what? That would at least be an explanation, which is better than, you know, what we have right now. And if they said that, I, you know, I will bet you money that if they said somehow the Hamilton Spectator trophy got lost, I bet you yeah. the Spectator would actually buy them a new trophy. Oh, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> Signs are lean at the spectator, but there's room in the budget for a trophy. Especially when it goes across Ontario. It's, it, it, I always thought this was odd. But way before the Hamilton had an OHL team again, you would travel around. I would go to do stories on Hamilton players in the league, whatever, and there would be banners hanging that says Hamilton Spectator Trophy, and I never knew anything about it. And it wasn't until they got a team back that we started looking it up. But, man, oh, man, does the OHL ever stick it to the spectator and stick it to Hamilton with their handling of this event, this trophy. I know. Well, you know what? We're not going to leave them alone until... Never. At, at least we have an answer. Never. And I tell you what, that's why I was hoping that the Bulldogs were going to win it this year. If only so, there could be so much pressure put on them to pull this thing out of mothballs somewhere. And then if it really was lost, they would go, oh, well, whoops. <laughs> All right, well, we'll, 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 hand, well, you know what, hand out, if you've lost it, hand out a photocopy of the picture, and they exactly. can all hold up the, the picture that they have, at least. 
Exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, now just before I let you go, because I know the first period is moving along here, the Hamilton Bulldogs have not, they're playing the Barry Colts tonight, a team they could play in the playoffs probably by about the second round. They yeah. have not had much success with Barry this year, and uh, by the looks of it, they are not having much success tonight. Not going well. <laughs> they have been in the last two games against Barry. They've been outscored 11-1. This is the team probably more than anyone this season uh, that has given them a hard time, and uh, now they're trailing by two early in the first. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Yes, well, I think we each made a prediction at the office today about what the final score was going to be, and I'm not going to say what it was, but mine is looking pretty good right now. I'm going to owe you so much money tomorrow, I think. Terry Pekoski from the Hamilton Spectator down at First Ontario Centre, where the Hamilton Bulldogs are trailing the Barry Colts, probably a playoff opponent, 2 nothing. Terry, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. No problem. Take care, Scott. It is. Uh, here's the thing about the Hamilton Bulldogs right now. I, I know when I talk to people and you have conversations with people, I understand that there is an audience that is really interested and there's an audience that is really, meh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sold on this. This is a good team this year. And this is an exciting team and this is a team that actually, I mean, presumably or hopefully if they don't have to run into the Barry Colts, which truly for whatever reason have their number. But this is a team that could make a playoff run, and if things went really well, you don't know. They could do very, very well in these playoffs. They've got a lot of very good players, and they've got a very deep team. be interesting to see when the playoffs roll around. I think this is their fourth last game. I believe they've got three more after this, and then the playoffs begin. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of interest, what kind of turnout, what kind of support they get when those playoffs roll around. I'll tell you, when the Hamilton Bulldogs were an AHL team, so a minor pro team, the, the, the farm team of the Montreal Canadiens, they basically played in front of family and friends for the first round. And then if they won the first round, then people might start to pay attention. And it was when they got really into about the third round of the playoffs that everybody started jumping on board. And the couple times they went all the way, or three times they went all the way to the finals, then the place was full. We will see if that could happen again with an OHL team. Time will tell. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.